This is Robert Capuccio. Welcome to the Self-Help Antidote, a weekly dose of reason, perspective, and insight, where we challenge conventional thinking and explore authentic strategies and insights around personal transformation. Our commitment to you is to bring you some of the world's leading experts in the domains of fitness, wellness, coaching, and behavior change, separating fact from fallacy. Chris Maroff. Thank you for joining us on the Self-Help Antidote. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. You know, I just want to jump in and geek out about something because I have a fixation. It, it's probably part of my Tourette's, but I have fixations around words and what they mean and in what context. And we're here to talk about your new book. And we're talking about discovering the heart of authentic leadership. And for me, there's kind of like what I like to call sandwich words, uh, one of my coaches actually stuck that word in my head. And again, that thing with words never got out. It's yeah. when you hear something, there's usually a word within the context of a sentence. You're like, okay, what? I want to hear more about that. There's an ever-increasing conversation around the word authenticity, but yeah. there doesn't seem to be an ever-increasing consensus around what exactly do you mean by <laughs> that? What does authentic mean to you in relation to leadership? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's an interesting, I think, topic for uh, leaders to dive into. Uh, for me, the authenticity uh, that I bring to relationship and then uh, the authenticity of the relationships that are brought to me are really based in truth. And so this idea of authentic community or this idea of authentic leadership stems from the ability for a leader, a person, a husband, a wife, a child, a mom, a dad, uh, to bring their truthful self uh, to relationship, to leadership. So that's really what authentic community or authentic leadership means to me is really somebody who's willing to pursue truth and then live by that truth. And when you're talking about truth, I mean, there's different levels of truth. You have objective truths like, you know, the the law of gravity, whether that's or right. not I believe in it or yep, subscribe to right. that. If I step out of a 10-story window, I'm going to have to conform to it. Then there's subjective truths. This that's is right. just the way the world occurs to me. And then our collective truths, this is the kind of truths we all agree with. So I, I kind of get the sense that whatever's true for me subjectively, I have the openness and the level of trust to bring that into whatever leader situation I find myself in. You're right. And the uh, the necessity, because uh, even in objective truth, there are things we don't know about. It. Um, and so uh, the reality of gravity uh, and the uh, the reason for gravity are not the same thing. And so for me, this idea of uh, authenticity is also just a constant pursuit of truth. Um, and so I, I know what I know today, and I'm going to let that uh, inform how I show up in all relationships uh, in leadership. Um, but I'm also going to be a real student for the rest of my life uh, to discover and pursue um, ever more truth as it relates to uh, really any topic. And so for me to kind of uh, spend a lot of time exploring truth uh, is a way to be authentic. So you're also talking about the leader serving in a role of guardian within the culture you of truth, it. 
by not allowing people to become too attached to their own dogmas, convictions, their sacred cows, if you will, because you we it. might be wrong about this or, or at the least we might be not 100% right. That's yeah. And I love that last phrase and I, and we can know that I'm not a hundred percent right. Um, we know that because we, we don't know everything. Uh, we're not God. We're not, uh, omnipotent, you know, we don't have this information, uh, at our, at our disposal. And so we, if we live that out in leadership in a way that not only calls that out of the people who are following us, but in ourselves as well, well, then we can all bring our whole selves to work, uh, in a way that we can celebrate each other's worldview without feeling like we're betraying some kind of truth or information, uh, that I happen to have. That is a brilliant point. Because I think on the surface, most organizations would advocate for authenticity, advocate for truth. I mean, they're not going to openly advocate for betrayal and dishonesty. But there seems to be this modeling taking place where like, okay, we want everyone in our organization focused on on their health and well-being. And at Friday, five o'clock, we want you out of here. Yet the leader is in the office until nine, 10 o'clock on a Friday. Or we want you to be a learning organization so long as you don't betray the sacred truths of the company. Well, how can we be a learning organization if we cannot let go of that which we're embracing today when we find new information, new perspectives, or when the rules of the world that we're playing by today change because the world's so dramatically different tomorrow? How do you maintain that that tenacity and still be a learning organization? Yeah. And for me, that really uh, dives into this concept of worldview. And so um, this is all part of that authenticity. If, If we understand and can even explore our own worldview and more importantly, the limitations. So I'll give you an example. Um, I will and have never, I have never and I will never be able to experience the world or see the world through the lens uh, as a female. Mm-hmm. I don't have that option. And so uh, because I don't, I just realized that creates a limitation to my worldview. And so what I want to do is I want to learn from the females in our office um, how they see the world so that I can, through their experience of life, understand more of the world. And so if we can understand or or really kind of put into perspective the limitations of our own worldview, now we can celebrate everyone else's worldview. Their worldview doesn't uh, threaten mine. Um, I can look at it as a way to learn about who they are, learn about uh, their unique experiences, their unique beliefs in a way that allows me to see more of the world uh, through their worldview. When I'm listening to you, I cannot help but think about Carol Dweck. It's not intentional. It's almost like a reflex where I do not define myself by what I know or by immutable, what I consider to be immutable characteristics. I define myself by my willingness and engagement in the continual process of learning. Exactly. And that really, when you think about it from an employee perspective, it's really one of the reasons that we dislike our boss most of the time is because we are being told truth and it's it's immovable. Um, mm-hmm. and, and instead of being invited into understanding, um, we're being told this is what you need to do and why, but we're not really being tapped to say, what do you think and, and how can you engage 
with me so that we can together understand truth better. It's why most leaders fail is because they're not on the precipice of learning, uh, but they are rooted in the, in the cellar, the basement of of what they believe to be truth. And so they're they're in this immovable place. And what that does is it really keeps employees from uh, showing up as their whole selves. They have to kind of compartmentalize uh, in a way to 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 just show up in the way that they think their boss wants them to uh, so that they can get by today uh, and survive another day. You know, we talk a lot about bad bosses and unfortunately it's a common experience. What I think is equally, if not even more valuable of a conversation is what does good leadership look like? Like I happen to know my boss, (laughs) my boss is extraordinary. Um, fallible obviously but extraordinary and one of her attributes that she's respected for but i i think people get nervous around is her level of patience mm. with rolling i mean she herself moves very quickly but she has a strong appreciation for and conscientiousness towards the fact that every whisper from her is a scream and she kind of allows people to make their own mistakes. And she she doesn't have the, this is the worldview according to the boss. And mm-hmm. I've watched people be one way in a culture. And then within a year, like if you, you wouldn't believe you were on the same team. Like when I first started yeah. working with the organization I work with now is like on the onboarding, people are very nervous. I'm like, oh, you got to watch mm-hmm. out for this. And this might happen. And now people are coming into the organization and they're saying things like, well, I was pulled over into the hall and told, you're going to love working here. You're never going to work anywhere else. You know, this place is going to ruin you for the rest of your life. People really care about each other here. And that's within a year. And it's like, like when you show up with this truth and respect and appreciation for people's worldview and you look at things like diversity equity and inclusion, not just as an ethical practice, but as a non-negotiable for collective long-term performance, it's a different world. Why is that not happening consistently if it has such a profound effect on the culture and therefore performance? Well, I think that uh, my answer to that question is uh, obviously complicated, but I'll I'll boil it down to this, that whenever you have uh, a visionary, Whenever there's somebody with a vision of a future that's different uh, than what we're able to experience today, then oftentimes that creates a lot of uncertainty. And so uh, unless you're just a really good vision caster, what what tends to happen is uh, those of us who tend to live in the future like I do, I move at lightning speed. And so um, I'm I'm trying to get people to join me on this journey, but they don't really see a clear picture yet of what this vision looks like in the future. And so what that often will do is it creates a lot of uncertainty. The moment people find any kind of uncertainty, and here's a great example. Uh, you know, you, you've worked hard on a project, you've got a report, maybe a task that you've completed and you hand it in and your boss looks at you and says, um, you know, that's okay, uh, but I, I really needed uh, this other report, this other task, this other thing done instead. Well, what that really does is it creates a lot of uncertainty for employees. And when you live in a world of uncertainty, uncertainty, we all go to our own corners. We get into this like self-preservation mode. And so when you're in self-preservation mode, 
uh, as a as an employee, uh, a middle manager, or as a leader, which we all get there, um, then the worst of us shows up. And so that's when we stop really bringing our authentic selves uh, to work. Instead, we kind of put on this wall or this picture of who I think that person needs me uh, to be. So I think the root of that problem is uncertainty. That's what really causes a lot of leaders uh, to get into this mindset where they've got to uh, dictate truth to everyone else in the organization. And as soon as they do that, they lose authenticity. Every once in a while in our lives, and I'll speak for myself in my life, somebody has explained something to me in a way that shifted my perspective and led me down a different ideological path. I don't want to make any predictions, but I'm thinking this might be one of those conversations. <laughs> you just explained something to me in a way that after literally thousands of conversations, nobody else has. The better of a visionary you are, the more you're seeing things at first that nobody else is seeing. Probably That's the right. quintessential definition of a visionary. That's so right. even though your vision for the future might be compelling, inclusive, it might be inspiring, especially in today's day and age where uncertainty is something that we're experiencing at an unprecedented level, you're in essence regardless of how powerful and inspiring your message, introducing uncertainty on top of uncertainty, people are going right. to react in fear. And the more fearful we become, the less reasonable we become. And the more we cling to what we know, what is certain? Well, the, the way we've been doing things around here, the way I've been thinking. Right. Wow. Okay. So I know this is also one of those questions that lead to a complicated answer. I can appreciate this. And I'm sorry, I keep doing this to you. <laughs> Is there an antidote for the visionary to to kind of like balance the level of uncertainty being introduced and how people receive it? Is that rooted in ownership amongst the it people? Is. It is. And so for me, uh, casting vision is one of my core leadership guiding principles. It's it's what throttles me and my excitement and my passion you know, it's funny, one of the things that I've had to deal with over the years is that when I come up with an idea uh, or a vision of the future that I think will benefit everyone in the room, man, I get so excited about it. And then everybody else, what they do is they take everything I'm saying after that point as a directive. And then they all run off and scurry off to try to create this thing. But here's something that I've learned over the years. This vision, think about this, that a picture is worth a thousand words. You've heard that expression before. Well, my vision, I have created it uh, over the last, let's say, three months. Moment by moment, I have in my mind, in my mind's eye, created this incredible vision of the future. And what I've done is I've boiled that down to one 60-minute conversation with other human beings and expecting and hoping that they'll be able to build the thing that I just spent 60 minutes describing, even though I took three months to build it in my mind's eye. It's absolutely ludicrous for most leaders. And so the antidote for most leaders in this scenario is to slow down and be great at vision casting. And the way I reference it or the story I tell as it relates to that is just like a fisherman who's trying to uh, cast their lure to catch fish, we have to cast our vision in a way that catches followers. And the followers to that vision, you nailed it, is about ownership. 
Um, I have to, like Inception, take this vision and put it in their minds as if it's their own idea. And once I do that, now, instead of one master uh, creator of a vision, I now invite these people in and to take my masterpiece and make it even more grand because they've included themselves in the building of this this future. And so what I have found is that if I become a student of vision casting, we hit heights that I never could have achieved on my own, number one. But then number two, we did it much, much faster. And so that's really a lot of this idea around vision casting is that the reflection of whether you're good at it or not is how well it's been caught. And so I have to ask all the time, like, where are you heading? What do you think we're trying to build? What does it look like to you? And getting that feedback, slowing down and getting that that consensus from my people uh, has really allowed me to build uh, and and do it much faster than I ever could have done on my own. So whether you are the founder of a large organization, whether you are a department head or whether you're a project manager, understanding that the things that you're presenting have been living in your head longer than they've been birthed into the room with the people that you're discussing. So what I'm hearing is kind of three steps. I hate to break something down into steps, but number one, what is a slowdown? Mm -hmm. What's maybe one point that you want to make? And then after you present that, the, the question, what do you think? as a litmus test of how it's being received. That's right. And another way to ask that last question is what do you see? Mm. So here's the picture I've painted. Um, and I may have done it quickly. It may be real rudimentary, but here's what I painted in this last 60 minutes. What is the vision that you now see? Get the people to kind of give that back to you so that you can reconcile where they are, what they see from what you see. And it's not that you have to solve it in, in one meeting. In fact, I've learned that I need to cast vision every time I interact with my people, um, not in a in a way that treats them like they're five, but in a way that honors their worldview. And so I need to retell the story many different ways based on who I'm talking to. That's why it's so important to honor and give dignity to everybody's worldview, because in that dignity, I'm going to slow down and tell the story, paint this picture in a way that I'm hoping that one person can understand it and then own it. Okay, you've you've used three references to story, and I want to get into that in, in, in a second. I can almost hear, however, the objections of people in my head, not like I'm hearing voices in my head, but I can <laughs> almost hear people. I don't have the time for this. And it just reminds me of something that Rolnick and Miller, the founders of Motivational Interviewing, pointed out, where you'll have a doctor saying, more and more of my job is data entry and admin. I have such a short amount of time with the patient. I don't have time to get into this line of inquiry and reflection. And their response was, when you have very little time, you don't have time not to get into motivational interviewing because when you're telling and dictating the world to a frightened patient, not dissimilar from the scenario that we're talking about right now, you're creating friction by not allowing that that patient's fears and concerns to be drawn out and redirected. So it's almost like by slowing down, it's a, it's a more effective way of speeding up within your organization. You got it. In fact, I have through this methodology, what I call alignment leadership is I have done the thing I have spent an entire lifetime kind of pursuing, which is 
Um, and I've said this before to many people, like I can make more money anytime. Uh, I can try, spend money, fail, but I can go make money anytime I want to. But what I can't do is I can't make more time. But actually what I've done is make more time. And so by by really kind of building an army of people all working on the exact same vision toward the same uh, future, I've been able uh, to build more time. I, I got to a place in my career where uh, about four years into starting my business, um, our growth kind of started to uh, plateau a little bit. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I started to wonder, was it because people stopped caring about where we were going? Or was I somehow um, removing the ability uh, that they had before to see where we were going? Is it a is it a glass ceiling issue? Or is it is it an opaque? Is it is it is it me kind of stomping out their ability to see where we were going? Well, we got so big uh, in those first four years that I just started to think, okay, these people don't care about it uh, any longer, and I had to go through a, a kind of a low point from a leadership and a honestly a human perspective for me to see that no, it was a matter of uh, creating self sacrifice in myself. Stop having all the answers, Bob. I mean, that's really what I had to learn. Uh, I was the glass ceiling. I was in the way of everyone in the organization uh, to show up in a way that allowed us to get where we wanted to go faster. And as soon as I started to learn this and extract myself, I started to make more time. Uh, Your argument or what you're hearing as the objection is the thing I hear more than anything else. I don't have time to sit and cast all this vision. There's, I got to get stuff done. Uh, But I'm telling you, if you can slow down and you can cast this vision, the one thing you'll do is you'll make more time. And it was a hard lesson I had to learn. But once I made it, man, I'm telling you, my company tripled in size. Um, my my top line revenue went from about $7 million, $21 million over a three-year period. And my EBITDA went from $1 million to $11 million. Why? We didn't get better or more clever in how we were executing what we were doing but I allowed other people to have the same level of ownership that I had. And I did that by casting vision really, really well. And so I would tell anybody, you don't, you don't have the luxury of not making enough time to vision cast well enough. That's the only way you're going to be able to scale what you're trying to scale currently. I love that answer. And so many times people, I could see people, I know for me, when I first got into leadership, which was actually a lot more management, I believe that what my team was counting on and what my the owner of the organization was counting on is that I would have the answers. Mm. And all I did was get in the way in highly disruptive ways. Mm. <laughs> so yeah. I, I was creating more problems than I was offering any solutions by needing to have the answer. And then I started to learn, no, I need to create the the I need to create an environment and offer resources to where people can feel they have ownership, they can develop themselves, and they could start figuring things out, even when it's messy. And if I trust right. that my people collectively are smarter than I am, which they were, <laughs> yep. then you'll, you'll be surprised at how much better they can do when you're just holding that space rather than being the driving force behind all of the intellectual capital within the organization. I tell my leaders now, and I tell anybody I can who will listen, your job as a leader is to become as unnecessary as possible. Your job is to trade your power 
for your people's greatness. And the only way you're going to be able to do that is if you have the ability uh, to see them, your people, as valuable, like more valuable than even your time. You know, you communicate things very clearly when you tell people you don't have time to do things that you know will serve them. And so we always talk about this idea of trade. There's a power vacuum that exists in every single meeting and every single business in, in the in, in the world. That when that boss walks through the door, people take on certain behavior. So are you willing to, as a leader, walk into every room, any room, and trade your greatness for theirs? It's a linear, it's a binary choice. Both sets can't coexist because they will, by uh, definition, defer to your greatness because you're the boss. And so we have to be aware of that, walk into every room and and in really intentionally trade my power. I have to work really hard to overcome the fact that I know they're a little fearful, uh, they're a little unsafe, uh, uncertain, trade that away so that I can uh, really make sure I call out their greatness. And their greatness is based in their human skills, those soft skills, uh, their kindness, their compassion, their ingenuity, their uh, their dedication, their loyalty, their faithfulness, all those things make up what makes a human so great. And I need to be able to pull that out of them in a way where they'll be able to overcome their fear, overcome this uncertainty, and join me on this quest toward an amazing future that we can build together. Wow, there's so many thoughts going on in my head. And you know, people listening to this, they've heard me talk about this a thousand times. So please forgive me. But when I'm listening to this conversation, Earlier, I said that there have been a couple of pivotal points that completely changed my understanding of how I interact with individuals within a company, within a leadership role. And the first one of those is I must have been at most 20 years old, me being put into my first leadership position and being horrendous at it. And the owner of the organization, who was kind of like a father figure to me, Mm. He, he had me sit down with one of our consultants. And to be fair, I was hoping that I was going to be fired because I was just like, I didn't want to be in that position, but I didn't want to let him down. So I would never quit. Right. Show yep. you like, like, that's a horrible reason for being in leadership and sticking with it. And this person sat me down, this consultant, and he asked me a question. And I started to actually think after a while, this, this is how lost I was, that he was a bit thick when he said, well, okay, let, let's start off with who do you work for? And I'm mm-hmm. thinking, you're a consultant. You should pretty much know that. So I right. told him my supervisor's name. And he's like, now, who do you work for? I started listing all the supervisors until I got to, of course, the owner of the company. And he just kept shaking his head like, you're lost. He's like, you just listed everyone who works for you. Like, who do you really work for? And I'm, I'm starting to think, okay, th- this guy's kind of pissing me off a little bit. <laughs> like, how are you a consultant? And the point he was making, was, and he was trying to help me arrive at that conclusion on my own, which wasn't easy because I'm accusing him of being thick. I was the thickest person in the room, probably in the company at that point. And he, he said, well, try this. Imagine that when you get to work tomorrow, just just pretend for a minute that everybody on your team purchased their department. They're all entrepreneurs. Problem is that they were high on enthusiasm, passion, very low on competence. They hired you as their consultant. In that scenario, who would you work for? 
Mm -hmm. I guess I would work for everybody who owns that department. Yeah. Try interacting with them like that in 30 days. If this isn't working for you, we can have another conversation. But then he looked at me in a very real moment. He said, well, to be fair, could it really get any worse? Mm. I was like, oh, yeah, I was I was not performing well. Yeah. And what, and what I'm hearing I'm, I, before somebody can ask themselves those questions, I think the question they really need to ask is, do you have a heart and a concern around leadership or career? I think that's a great point. That's a great point. And that's what we really kind of talk about the heart of leadership is, uh, is someone willing to live out maybe a different definition for most of my life until I was 42 years old, 43 years old, I thought leadership was really defined as um, like the strong, confident uh, problem solver. Um, I was amazing in crisis, like super calm, uh, always able to, to have the right answer at the right time. But then again, I hit kind of my low point and coming out of that, I really wanted to redefine leadership and I'm a big words guy myself. And so I wanted to come up with a, a definition that would help me understand what do I do every day? Because what I had done every day created a semi-successful business, but an absolutely uh, horrible personal experience where I felt so emotionally alone and isolated that I wanted to quit the very company that I started just a few years before. So I said, well, so let's stop with that definition. Let's rewrite a new one. And that really goes to the heart of what you just said, that uh, for me, I want to love and serve my people toward their fulfillment. And this idea of love is based on a, 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 a root word of agape, which is charity. In other words, I want to give myself away to my people. That's kind of the idea of I want to love my people. And that's that also that idea of I want to trade my power for their greatness. Like th this, this work is about them. It's not about me. And so that that's a great question for people to ask themselves. Do you really want to lead people or do you want all the trappings of leadership? Do you want this career? Because those are two different things. And the corner office VP title. You got it. And the people that you lead will know which one you honor more. Um, and they are, they are the only people, by the way, who can actually make you successful. And I don't mean just in business, but I mean in, in life. And yet you're willing to trade them away for that title, for that salary, uh, you know, wh whatever you want from a, a, a you know, career perspective. Um, and it, it's counterintuitive uh, to what the world tells you. But that's what I have found. Fulfillment in leadership is when I really embrace this idea of loving and serving my people. The most insidious, and this is my personal bias, the most insidious people in any organization are the career minded people. Yeah, it's those even the people who are quote unquote negative. They're they're overwhelmed with personal concerns. That's a failure of leadership, not a failure of the person. You either hired right. the wrong person or you hired the right person and failed them at yep. somewhere between onboarding and their tenure in your organization. But it's the career minded people that it's very hard to get any type of shift because they're not there for that. And they will no. they will say no to something that benefits the organization and the people because it doesn't directly benefit them. You got it. You got it. So exactly. <laughs> talking about love, it, it's very unusual to hear somebody in business use the word love, unless, of mm. course, you're Herb Kelleher. Then, yes. <laughs> so, but. <laughs> I remember I was working overseas in, for on a government project, and I, I was I was taking a lot of criticism 
which which is their right, from head office. Because we were trying to do something within the government that had never been done before. And I had to hire a team of people to do it. And I chose to hire a team of people that had absolutely no experience in what we were trying to do because I don't, I don't hire people. I audition. I yeah. fill a room with as many people as possible. I want to see who you are and you don't know what I'm looking for. I so you that. can't stage it. It truly is casting, not hiring. I, love I chose to go with people who were beautiful they had a sense of purpose. They had a sense of duty to, to their nation and they were coachable. And yep. these were these, I mean, the project ended a while ago, uh, thanks to COVID, but these are people who are, I'm still very close to love them. And they were getting a lot of criticism because it was a rough road and they were struggling. And my response is back off my people, like, trust me on this, give them space to fail it's going to work out. It's going to work out in the worst circumstances. These people pulled through and succeeded beyond anyone's any, anyone's expectation. And then the conversation after the project was over was quite different. One of our, our principals within the organization called me and said, would you just spend some time with me? I don't know what you did out there, but we can't seem to scale it. How do we reproduce this? And basically the conversation was you hire the right people and you have to love them. And when you say that the person on the other end of the phone was like, what are you talking about? We can't possibly scale that. And what do you mean by that? Yeah. This idea of love agape is the root word that I choose for, for love, which is charity. Like I said, and this idea of charity is about self-sacrifice. And so when I love my people, I just mean that when I'm in a, in a, let's say an anxious state and we're in a meeting, my anxious state is always because I have a vision of a future. We're not getting there in the same timeline or as fast as I want us to get there. There are constraints that are, are affecting our ability to get there. So my anxiety goes up. So what happens when I become anxious? Well, my natural state is to become impatient. That's just who I am. Um, And so when we get into a meeting and I can feel this tension. I can feel it in my chest, this, this anxiety. And uh, when I start to explain things, I, I use fewer words. And instead of becoming a great vision caster, I shrink down uh, into this impatient, condescending human who's saying basically like, come on, folks, mm-hmm. what is taking you so long? Uh, another way for me to say it is to, and I think it unfortunately, which is like, what is wrong with you? Well, that's felt. And so in this impatient mode, um, my people can't thrive. And so to love them, to give charity toward them is for me to choose to self-sacrifice, give up my impatience and embrace patience. That's what I mean by love my people. And so really understanding who I am, understanding who my people are, that is this idea of self-sacrifice. And so every time I walk into a room, Think of it this way. There are two high-powered magnets, uh, my people and me. And depending on what's going on in their life, they may be in, and I may be in a place where we're repelling each other. Okay. I have got to do the work. I'm the leader. They're not. I'm the leader. I've got to figure out which side of me needs to show up so that we'll be attracted. So that's this idea of loving my people is what do they need in this moment Uh, at this time, based on what they're going through, based on what the organization's going through, not making them 
figure out how to show up to meet my needs. Um, we've done a great job, hopefully, in casting vision and, and where we're going. I don't need to recast vision um, in a way that's condescending just because I'm feeling anxious. What what are they feeling and how do I show up well for them? That's this idea of loving my people. And you're also talking about something that comes with love. You're talking about trust. Because Absolutely. without trust, that is a it is easy for us to have this conversation. That is very yep. hard to put into play throughout your culture. So same group of people, when we were doing our coaching and presenting training, my advice was in answer to a question, love your people, the people sitting in the audience, love them. Um, The people that you're in your group with in a coaching situation, love them. And we had this guy from Dublin and uh, this is, He just he just came undone with that because he was this hard nosed operation and numbers guy, which really interesting. He he's a great leader and and a remarkable human being and loves his people, very loyal, but he can't allow himself to go there. And he's like, how could you love people that you don't even know what you're talking about here is nonsense? Mm-hmm. I said, okay, well you're getting confused between love being how you feel. I right. love you. I love you. I love you. Yeah. Because right. that always works out really well in the long yeah, term right. <laughs> versus <laughs> how I engage with you. That's right. What do you do when you love someone? You yeah. trust them. When they make a mistake, you have the most generous rationale as to why they made a mistake. And right. you don't want to point out the mistake. What you want to do is help them get on track. You very readily recognize their strengths and their highest attributes. And when they demonstrate that, you're the first one to go, did you see what you just did? So they have the capacity to duplicate that because the worst thing in the world is not failing miserably. The worst thing in the world is succeeding massively and having no idea how you produce that. That's That's the worst thing in the world. Yeah. So, and Tom Tom Peters once uh, said, and I use this quote all the time, I reward excellent failures and punish mediocre success. Um, th- the idea that this this inability to fail, um, and there are a lot of humans that are just uh, are are kind of wired in a way that says, I can't fail. Now you you put in a, a power struggle at work and it's it, you know amplified a thousand times where we just don't let people fail. In fact, the only way to get to the vision that I'm casting is through failure. Um, th- there's no perfect path that's created to a vision that we see in the future. Um, and so the faster we fail, actually, uh, the faster we get to this vision and live this out, this future that we all want. And so I I love the concept and th- this idea that leaders, um, unfortunately, what they do is they live in the in-between. And and the in between is is what I refer to this. Um, they're they're kind of they're not even passive and they're not aggressive. They're in the in between, and and what they do is day by day they show up in different ways based on what circumstances dictate. And by loving our people, what we're saying is that we're not going to live in the in between. We're going to live in an aggressive stance. This idea that says I'm going to aggressively love you. I'm going to live out love as a verb. Uh, not as affection is what you're saying. And I agree with it, that this is going to, this is going to cause action. And what am I going to do that's going to allow somebody uh, to show up as their best self today? W- what is my role 
in that today. That's an aggressive stance of love as a verb. How am I going to show up? And so when I walk into a room and I and I have an engagement with an employee and I talk to them and I ask them how they're doing and they give me a road answer or they give me a fine, a good or okay, most leaders are okay with that. That's called the in-between. That doesn't help that person understand how to show up even better than the way they felt that morning. But when you can show up in a way that gives them um, a real ear, like somebody who's willing to listen, real empathy, now that opens the door for, for empowerment. And that's that concept to me of love as a verb. This is now I'm going to sacrifice some of my time. And I know it's valuable, but I'm going to sacrifice. And instead of a five minute, hey, how are you doing? I'm going to give him a 30 minute I'm concerned about you. Like, I love you. I care about you. And I want to make sure that I'm doing everything I can to allow you to show up as your best self today. And that's what I mean by love as a verb. Any one of us who has worked for an effective boss knows how much more effective we have been, almost to the point of a zealot. That that comes out of people because... You know, we place so much emphasis on intrinsic characteristics like yep. commitment and determination, all of which are very important, not discounting any of that. But right. if you if you listen to behavioral experts like BJ Falk, like James Clear, we undervalue identity and environment. And, right. and when you show up and you're that type of leader, you help me identify with and have an affinity for the organization where the organization ends and I begin starts to get blurred. And we talk right. about empathy and trust and love and people. Are, well, those almost dismissively, those are soft skills. You had, you had quoted Tom Peters earlier. I, I think when Tom Peters said that he was, he was quoting Sidney Daniels, if I'm getting that name correctly, at Royal Dutch Shell. Not exactly okay. a warm and fuzzy organization traditionally. Those are not what you look at the, that group as these, these out there granola snacking type of leadership. They're, that's hard-nosed leadership, and they're still yeah. using language like that. That's right. Let's talk about the, the empathy revolution for a second. Yes. How did you come up with that? I, 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 I love the wording around that. What made you think, you know what, this is necessary and I, I'm, I'm on this crusade? So a personal experience of mine um, in leadership, and I've kind of referred to it a little bit, but th this journey I was on, um, I moved to Texas, Austin, Texas in 2011 to start a business. Um, and in doing so, I, I moved away from from the East Coast and from uh, the Boston area. And so moved my family. Brooklyn. Away from, OK, I moved my family away from everything I had known um, to a real alien place for me, which was Texas. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, when we did that, we moved away from all friends and family uh, so that I could launch out on my own and start this business. Well, I, I had a whole set of metrics for myself um, that I wanted to hit. And in the first four years, uh, blew them away. And when I started, um, I had a, a really good friend of mine, my best friend, uh, help me start the business uh, in, in 2011. And um, we went and had our company Christmas party at the end of 2014. And uh, by that point, we had grown to 70 employees. We were, um, I think, number two in the marketplace, uh, in the industry that we were in. I mean, cloud nine, again, every metric. Um, blown away. And um, I remember we, 
um, had this company Christmas party and we're sitting there looking around. My, my buddy and I were looking around at all the people, uh, not only the 70 employees, but their significant others. And there's just a lot of people and a lot of energy and a lot of excitement. Uh, and I was just cloud nine, just thinking this is amazing. Very next morning, I get in and my my best friend and I shared office. Uh, our offices were right, right next to each other. And I get an email from him, which I thought was weird since he's sitting uh, right over there. And it's a letter of resignation. And I remember uh, reading through it and unfortunately, uh, somewhat emotionally unintelligent, um, where I convert all emotion to anger. And so immediately as I'm reading this, I'm I, I'm I'm pissed off and I'm thinking to myself, dude, why why are you leaving? We're at this 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 pinnacle moment. Um, we both got to celebrate last night with 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 everyone. What, what's going on? Well, called him in my office uh, again. I wasn't about to trade my power for his greatness. I wasn't about to to love him in any way. I was going to find out answers um, and really harmed relationship. Um, and I, I had to kind of go through this, this like self-exploration as to like, what's happening here? Um, and why, if he's been looking for the last nine months, which he was, why didn't he bring me along in this? Like, I thought we were friends. I thought we were best friends. I thought we were great coworkers. What's going on? Well, I had been meeting um, over the last couple of years with a guy from my church who had started conversations with me about empathy. Um, and, uh, again, emotionally unintelligent. So this idea of empathy just meant that that person who needed empathy was weak. Um, not proud of myself, but that was the mentality growing up in new England. I don't know. I just thought, well, suck it up. You know, that was the, the house I was raised in. If I had any tears, my parents would, would say, tell me to dry it up. Um, if I, you know, had uh, any kind of hardship or any kind of emotion, yep. they would tell me to suck it up. And so that's just the way I was raised. I'm sure that's the way my parents were raised. Um, and so I, I found myself learning a little bit about empathy. When my wife comes to me with what she's feeling, I'm starting to learn that I don't just tell her how to fix it, but I start to listen and engage a little bit. But I'm still really an infant on this this journey. Well, I met with this guy three weeks after Jason, my best friend, uh, put in his his two weeks. And he's typical conversation around empathy. But at the end of the meeting, he's sitting there, he's going, hey, uh, tell me how you're feeling. And this question always used to piss me off because I'm like, dude, I don't know how I'm feeling. I feel happy, sad, mad, and I try not to feel any of those. So why do you keep asking me this question? But he asked me how I'm doing. I said, I'm fine. Again, fine, good, and okay were my favorite three uh, three responses. Um, and so he says, I know you're not okay. Uh, I don't know what's going on, but I know you're not okay. He says, Chris, I'm going to leave you with this question, and um, I want you to think about it. But is there another person on the planet that you could share your deepest fears or your deepest hurts with? Then, of course, I lied, and I'm like, yeah, I got my wife. I got my friends. I've got people I can tell that to. Well, I get in my car that night, and I drive home from work. And again, like I said, emotionally unintelligent. Everything goes to anger, and I'm pissed off in my car. I'm pissed at the the traffic. I'm pissed at the terrible drivers. I'm pissed off at uh, uh, Donnie for asking me that question. I'm now angry at Jason. I'm angry with my parents. Ultimately, I end up being very angry with myself, like I always do, feeling a lot of guilt. But I remember something uh, that popped into my head in that moment. And I said, dude, here's the problem. You've created a prison for yourself because you lack any kind of vulnerability. You don't let anyone see any fear, any weakness, anything. You always have all the answers. And if you don't, you fake it. Prison for yourself. I had created a prison of my own making. 
And it was the loneliest I had ever experienced life. Uh, I'm one of these very extroverted outgoing. I love to be with a lot of people. I love to have a lot of fun. And I never contemplated emotional loneliness before, but it rocked me. And it took me about 12 months to figure out who was I going to be going forward? Who, who was the dad I was going to be? Who was the husband? Who was the employer? Who was the boss? What were going to people define me at at my memorial? That I was a lot of fun, um, that uh, I built a big business, that I solved a lot of problems. I didn't care about those things anymore. I wanted to seek out authentic community. I wanted to seek out this authenticity of relationship that was going to define me on my deathbed. And so that's really been my last seven to eight years. And that's why the empathy revolution, uh, I wrote the book, uh, as a memoir, as a journey of my leadership, um, and all the highs and lows, all the, all the emotion that, that comes with putting yourself out there, uh, in leadership and caring and loving people. And so I'm, I'm super, uh, proud of it. Uh, the one thing I, I won't take credit for the name itself. So I sent it to one of my heroes, uh, in in leadership, Pat Lencioni, uh, and and hoping he would take some time and and read and give me some feedback. And his feedback was amazing. He he wrote me an email back and he said, number one, loved the book, absolutely loved this book. I hate your title. He says you should call it the Empathy Revolution. And so anyway, that's how we landed on that title. So you you had this deeply intense moment of reflection and self awareness in your car. And realize that you are living in a prison of your own making, which which is a a powerful visualization. What was the very first thing that started to change about you after you had that conversation with yourself? So in reality, action took longer. Um, I'm an action-driven guy, but man, fear just gripped me. And the thought of putting myself out there the thought of asking for empathy, even indirectly, just scared the crap out of me. And so for me to go and tell somebody, hey, hey, I'm messy, uh, I'm weak, I've got this problem, um, you know, uh, it just terrified me. And so I, I, I refused to do it. But I, I ended up hiring this one girl and um, she was part of our sales team. And so I was still training. Uh, in fact, she replaced Jason. Um and I was training her. And so we were in the car a lot, driving to uh, uh, public schools. That was one of the, that was the businesses, the business that I was running. And um, she, this this girl just had an incredible personal story. Um, uh, and I, I was kind of intrigued and I'm trying to live out this empathy. And so I'm, I'm asking her a lot of questions. We're engaging. Well, this went on for several months and um, we were about to go to a, a school district and she could tell I was off. I was having some uh, again, some of my uh, internal demons of, uh, you know, worth and value uh, playing out. And she just asked me, like, are you OK? And so this was the first moment that I I felt like I'm going to go ahead and say, no, I'm not OK. And I remember thinking to myself, dude, it's like you're about to try to summit Everest here. You're acting as though this is the hardest thing on the planet. And all you have to say is, no, I'm not OK. It was brutal. And so I said, no, I'm not okay. Well, she didn't ask me any other questions. We get out of the car and she looks over at me and she she just said, I'm so sorry. And it was the first time I realized I'm not going to get laughed at. I'm not going to get rejected. If I, if I show up in this vulnerable way, I think people will love me. You connected. So I, can, I connected. 
And it started to teach me that I can do this differently. And that was kind of a, a catalyst for me to figure out how to give that as a gift to my employees instead of cursing them with my weakness and my mess. I give it as a gift so that they can give me empathy. And it's been an amazing journey. Now, the response we get from people is largely influenced by how we're showing up. What were some other things that started to surprise you as you were more open and empathetic with how that was not only creating direct responses with you, but changing the dynamic within your culture? It really started to teach me what my job was going to be as a leader. And so once I saw it modeled to me, I started to understand the power of that empathy. And I'm like, holy cow, I see what this is really all about. See, I thought before empathy was something I did for a weak person. What I learned by getting empathy was that it's what you do because you love a person, because they're not weak, but because they have value. And so that really started to change the way I perceived uh, human beings. And I said, no, I, I want to do this for another person. I want to be that one that makes them feel like they're valuable, like they have worth like they're not just something to be thrown away. Um, and so that was really the catalyst for me to figure out how do I do this so well so that another human being can feel the way I feel right now? Which in and of itself is a realization birthed out of empathy. You That's can right. never arrive there if you're not in an empathetic space. That's right. So who should really consider? reading your latest book and what if, if someone's open to the content between the pages what's going to be different 30 days after reading the book that's a great question i would say that the book is really written for leaders who um might be in middle management they might be owners uh, they might be uh, small business owners and trying to scale a business and maybe they're looking for ways to figure out how to connect with their people But it's going to be for that person who has real relationships um, with their uh, team, with their employees, and are wanting to figure out how to show up really well for their people. Like this isn't going to be a, uh, a book about leadership that's going to help you in your career as much as it will help you uh, to understand how you can leverage the people you've been blessed with. And so I would say that's really the book um, and what, what and, and who it's written for. As far as what things will look like 30 days, I'm hoping that uh, a lot more self-awareness will start to show up. I'm hoping that people will start to take tangible steps toward trading their power for their people's greatness. Um, and that can be large things, could be small things. I, I give three examples in the book of, of phrases I started to use uh, on a daily basis so that I could start being more vulnerable. Uh, phrases like, um, I don't know, and I need your help, and I'm sorry. Um, those are started out as disciplines, and now they're just kind of woven into the fabric of who I am. Um, but uh, I'm hoping that I can give some practical reality for any leader who wants to love their people uh, in a very uh, tangible way at work. I'm hoping that in 30 days, they'll be able to start executing on a couple of these little ideas. What I really like about your answer is how it kind of prunes the wrong audience. So it's not going to give you a a how-to guide, step-by-step takeaways for your own personal career. So anyone who's thinking career is like, oh, this 
this book isn't for me. But if you're truly in leadership, it's like there is no success without your people. That's your right. people are the work. It's not about you. It's right. about how you hold space, create an environment for and facilitate the forward momentum of your people towards a vision that matters. You got it. That's exactly it. Well, you, you, the thing, the thing I hate about this interview right now is if we're coming to an end, I could listen to you <laughs> literally for hours. I, I found this conversation to be fascinating. Um, I would encourage people, myself included, read some of your books. This was fantastic. I just want to say thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me on. It's, it's always a privilege. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Visit us at theselfhelpantidote.com to share your feedback, insights, and recommendations on what topics you'd like us to explore in the future.